James 2. So uh, please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, and we thank you for this opportunity to open your word and be encouraged and challenged and be reminded of your goodness, your faithfulness, your heart, your grace, your mercy, your love, your righteousness, all that who you are. Um, God, today is a day where you uh, have a word for us. You have a reason we are here this morning in this passage on this day. You got us up. You got us here. And it wasn't just to get through the day. And it wasn't just to get us to tomorrow. You have things you want to teach us. You have ways you want to grow us. You have opportunities for us to step into uh, the great story that you have been writing throughout history that you have invited us to be part of today, Lord. This is not just killing time until something better comes along, but you have work you want to do in our hearts, in our minds. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be attentive, that we would um, hear those things, that we would be challenged and encouraged and respond to those things. God, we thank you for all the ways that you speak to us. And, Lord, as we open up your word and as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So, uh, as I said, we're in James 2. We uh, have been walking through this letter from James. And so, uh, this here, this section that we're going to look at this morning takes a very similar theme that we, uh, routine that we have seen already played out in James, where he starts with an instruction. James is known as this kind of um, Proverbs of the New Testament, and a lot of it is a lot of declarative instruction sentences. And so, he gives us an instruction. But we have been wanting to get past that. This is not just do this, don't do that, but rather do this and here's why and here's the heart behind it. And that's what James does here. He gives us an instruction and a reason why we need to follow it. And then he gives us, here's an example of how this plays out and an appeal to our hearts, which is where we want to land. We want to get into, it's not just Christianity. Our faith is not just about do's and don'ts, what we do and don't do and do and don't say, but rather why and what is our heart, what is our motives behind it. So we're going to be in James 2. I'm going to read the passage and then we will uh, jump back in. So James 2, starting in verse 1. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into the courts? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we're going to start with the instruction. And right at the top, he says, my brothers. And again, as you heard me read it, it's my brothers and sisters. That word is, is a, a colloquial word. My brothers and sisters. James is not writing to senators. 
He's not writing to politicians. He's not writing to business leaders. He's not trying to change public policy or change the way laws and businesses function. There is a place for Christians to stand up and pursue institutional change. That's good and needed and important, but that's not what we're addressing here. What we're talking about here, what he's, who he's writing to here are Christians. He's writing to the church, to the men and women who have placed their faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And he's writing about how we as individuals and as a community are to conduct ourselves when we gather, when we, in, when we engage with one another. He's addressing and calling us to examine what it looks like when we are together and how we treat each other. And so he says, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality. Show no favoritism. Make no effort to rank or elevate one person above another. This was a culture and society that was founded in this very thing. There were divides and separations regarding what you believed, where you were born, your race, your ethnicity, your gender. Even within those categories, there were subcategories that broke down. And once you found your spot in the world, you could not break out of it. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how James's letter, this letter here, is probably the earliest of the New Testament writing. And he addresses this issue of partiality, of preference, of favoritism already creeping up, right? He didn't just pick an issue out of thin air and say, hey, let's talk about partiality. It's clearly something that he has observed starting to happen, that he has already heard is happening amongst Christians, and he wants to try and stop it before he gets out of control. And it's really something that the church will continue to deal with throughout the New Testament and throughout history. Much of Peter and Paul's writings in the New Testament deal with the reality that at the core of the church, when, when the church begins, you have really two main groups, right? You have Jewish Christians, you have those who grew up in Judaism, grew up under the law, grew up with the rituals and the sacrifices and all of those things, and now have left those things, heard the gospel, had their hearts changed, have left those things, but Judaism still drives so much because it wasn't just religion, it was their life, it was their culture, it was who they were, it was what they ate, it was what they wore, it was how they interacted with one another. It was everything for them. And then on the other side, you have pagans, you have Greeks, you have non-Christians, you have non-Jews, you have people who, if they have any notion of God at all, it's some kind of idolatrous worship that had to do with money and sex, usually. And so now you have these two very different groups of people coming together to try and figure out how do we do this? How do we do church life? How do we figure this out? And so, so much in the New Testament is writing in response to one group holding something against the other group. The Jews wanted the Greeks to be circumcised. The Greeks wanted to be able to eat whatever they wanted. And back and forth they went and they argued. And so Peter and Paul oftentimes throughout the New Testament are writing, trying to help figure out, look, you guys are all on the same team. You guys are all on an evil playing field. No one is better, a more, more um, religious Christian than the next one. Just because you do or don't do one thing or the other doesn't make you any better. And so how these two groups are going to figure out how to become one body, one community that reflects and glorifies God in this way, how do they come together? That's most of the New Testament. And as they do that, they also have to battle against culture. Everything the world around them is telling them. That the fine clothes, the gold rings, the air of nobility, it is to be adored, respected, and desired. Money. Influence, power, these are the things that should be held up and idolized. And they are just certain people who should be at the front of the line. 
There are some people who are just born better. There are some who should be at the head of the table, and then there are those who deserve the scraps. That's the culture they are growing up in. Does it sound familiar at all? James instructs them, don't do this. Don't play these games. Do not show partiality. Do not lift one group up over another just because of the clothes on their back. Because there's a difference between the community James is writing to and those outside of it. And that reality is there. He says, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality because you hold hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James's reason for why they should not be partial, they should not show partiality, no favoritism in their midst, is simple. Our faith in Jesus. God shows no partiality. We see that in a variety of places throughout Scripture. A couple of them. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. 2 Chronicles 19.7 Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. Or Paul, very simply in Romans 2.11, For God shows no partiality. There's one more example of it. In John 13, Jesus is eating a meal with his disciples. And when you ate at that time and culture, before a meal would happen, because they ate together, not at tables elevated like we do, they ate down on the ground. They would kind of be propped up on pillows and cushions. And so everybody was very close to each other and close to each other's feet. And back then, they didn't have shoes, right? They're walking in sandals. They're walking in barely a sandal. And everybody's feet and everybody's just generally kind of smelly, kind of gross, right? And so before a meal would happen, the host of the meal would have their servants come and wash everyone's feet. It was custom. It was customary. This meal, Jesus is the host. Jesus has no servants. And none of the disciples want to wash each other's feet. And so in the midst of the meal, Jesus gets up, gets a basin of water, and he begins to wash the feet of his disciples. This is a disgusting and demeaning job. Like I said, one reserved for servants. And in John 13, 12, Jesus says to them, when he had washed their feet and put on, their outer gar- put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash the feet of one another. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus does this act that everyone can't believe he did. And he looks at his friends and he says, you call me teacher and Lord. You put me in this place of authority. You recognize who I am in relation to who you are. And I just filled the role of a servant, of a slave. I did one of the most undignified tasks because you needed it, because it served you. Jesus didn't allow his role, his status, who he was to stop him from performing an act of service that was simple, ordinary, and gross. And if you sit in that passage long enough, the thing that sticks out to me often is that in John 13, 5, it says, He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And then in verse 12, when he had washed their feet. Now, you might not have caught it in either of those verses. But Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. We know this. All of the disciples. All 12. 
Judas isn't gone yet. Jesus got on his hands and knees in front of the man who would betray him, who would lead the guards to him. Jesus washed the feet of Judas Iscariot just hours before his betrayal. This is service. This is showing no partiality. It is not based on what someone can do for you or serving that is convenient and easy. Serving the people who it's easy to serve. Loving the people it is easy to love. The people who are like you and like you. Jesus washes, washes Judas's feet just as he washed John's and Peter's. He models for us what it is to serve with no partiality. And reminds us that serving can be hard and uncomfortable. Because just hours after this foot washing, we know what happens. Jesus allows himself to be arrested, allows himself to be beaten, allows himself to be murdered. He freely gives up his life to serve the very creation he made. He serves you, and he serves me, and he serves all of humanity by going to the cross so that anyone and everyone, regardless of anything and everything else, anyone who would confess their sins and admit their need for a Savior and place their faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins will find new life here, now, and forever. We are to show no partiality because our God shows no partiality. We are to show no partiality because we have been the recipients of God's impartial, unconditional, amazing love and grace. The faith you hold, the faith you cling to when everything else in the world is upside down and inside out, that faith, that relationship, that hope, it is based in the reality that God shows no partiality. That in itself is reason for us to be a people who are not partial, who do not play favorites. Now James gives another example, gives us an example of partiality playing out in the church community setting. And this example he gives is speaking really to the rich and the poor. He's talked about it in chapter 1. He's going to come back to it again in chapter 3. He speaks to the reality that oftentimes the rich got treated better than the poor. Better seats, better treatment, better influence, more well regarded. And when it comes to the church from a logical and really financial standpoint, it would make sense for that to happen. Right? This isn't necessarily the church should treat the poor worse, but rather... Well, if they treat the rich folks nice, maybe they'll be a little more generous with some of their riches. Remember, James is writing to Christians who are scattered due to persecution. They were oppressed and hunted and generally unwanted and unwelcome. They had left their home. They had left their land. They had left their livestock. They just kind of took whatever they could and got out before Paul and the Pharisees arrested them. But money can fix a lot of problems. Right? It's kind of akin to when politicians, are throw, when politicians throw fundraiser dinners. Right? They do these fundraisers and it's $1,000, 2000 dollars $5,000 a plate. And it's not because the lemon chicken is just perfect. It's a way of donating funds and raising funds for the campaign. Right? But those kind of events are not just like open house potlucks. Right? Not just anybody can walk into those. It's for the elite. It's for those certain financial class. See, this might not be about mocking or belittling the less fortunate, but to focus on a specific group and give them preferential treatment because of how they appear or what they can do for you, maybe it's wrong. James says in verse 4, you have made yourself judges with evil thoughts. By doing this, even if the church has claimed, well, we're not treating the poor any worse, we're just trying to treat the rich nicer so they can help us out. 
if they had they claim they have the best of intentions, even if they're in their heads, they could come up with some way to justify their actions and decision making in showing partiality, in playing favorites, in exalting the rich. They were not only treating the poor people poorly, but were establishing themselves as the judges and giving themselves a level of power and control over another person. They were indulging in what James says are evil thoughts, revealing a wickedness of their own hearts. And that's why he stops himself in verse 5. He says, listen. That's one of those words in the Bible is pay attention. Stop what you're doing. Just focus right now. Listen and pay attention. Because I love you and y'all are missing the point. As he did in chapter 1, he reminds the readers that this life, this, our material possessions of it are not the end-all be-all that some make it out to be. James says, it is the poor who are rich in faith who are heirs of the kingdom. Why? Because as Pastor F.B. Meyer once said, the rich man may trust God, but the poor man must. The poor man has no fortress in which to hide except the two strong arms of God. Whereas Jesus says in Luke 6, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. What Jesus is saying there is basically if your faith, if your hope is wrapped up in your stacks of money, then make sure you enjoy it because this is all you're getting. You have received all you're going to get. But to the one who is poor, to the one who is hurting, to the one who is grasping and clinging to God, their faith will serve them well because whether or not you are rich or poor, the reality is our existence doesn't end when we take our final breath here. There is eternity waiting for us. And though you may be weak, ignored, or poor here, if your faith is in Christ, that faith will be rewarded and as an heir of the kingdom on that day. James goes on in verses 6 and 7, and he asks a couple of rhetorical questions here. He's asking rhetorical questions about how the rich oppress and mistreat those beneath him. How they manipulate and use systems created to protect them and to exploit others. How they make a mockery of the church and faith because who needs faith and prayers because I got a dump truck of money that says I can fix any problem that comes my way. What James is really after here with these rhetorical questions is basically he's saying, why are you bending over backwards for the people who are detrimental to you? Why are you trying to oppress those who are in desperate need of hearing, of hearing the gospel, those who are in desperate need of being cared for? Why are you oppressing those for the people who oppress you? Partiality, playing favorites, creating arbitrary reasons and factors for what makes some people more important than others. It's been happening throughout history, and it happens today. Because the more things change, the more they stay the same. Right here we are. We're in 2023 in Chicago. We are a world and decades upon decades removed from James writing this letter. And yet we're still wrestling the same matches. Whether it's a disparity when it comes to wealth, education, background, relational status, age, life experience, color of skin, or culture, the dividing lines remain. And we see them even within churches. And we add in, even in the churches, we have our own special dividing lines, right? We create separation regarding communion or baptism or eschatology or whether or not you can have drums on stage. Who can serve in what role, when and where and how? 
It's as if we as people are continually looking for ways to segregate and isolate and eliminate the potential for real relationships and community to happen, which is striking because we are made for community. It's built into our DNA. You have value and worth just by being you because you are made in the image and likeness of God. Scholars and theologians use the fancy word. They call it the imago Dei, the image of God. Everyone has it, regardless of your faith, regardless of your background, you have been made in the image and likeness of God. And so any system or policy or law or person or group that would exercise some type of authority or power to manipulate or hurt or in any way belittle or harm another person is attacking the very image of God which God himself implanted into you when he made you. In fact, those are a direct attack on God himself. The reality that you are a person means that you matter to God. You have worth and value to him. He made you and he knows you and he loves you. And anyone who would try to do anything to attack that reality is acting on Satan's behalf. Now look, we know there is darkness in the world. We live in a broken, fallen world. Satan has been doing damage throughout history, right? Adam and Eve bit the fruit. Cain killed Abel. On and on we could go. Genocides, wars, murders, violence, lies, adultery, idolatry. The list goes on and on. We know we live in a fallen world. But Christian, what we also have to remember, because it's the thing that we also know, is that our God is a God of justice. And he will always have his justice. We may not see it. We may not even get to hear about it on this side of heaven. But our God sees the evil that is committed in the world. He sees the oppression and sin and it breaks his heart. And he is not sitting on his hands hoping everything works itself out. He hears the cries of the brokenhearted. Those cries and prayers do not fall on deaf ears. He has always been and is still currently actively, intimately involved in this world. And his righteousness, grace, mercy, and justice will be carried out. So do not lose hope. Do not lose heart because our God is one of justice. This notion of partiality, creating tears of people's worth and value, it is wrong and evil. When it comes to this place, this building, this community, and any other gathering of believers, we are to be people who are welcoming and rest-filled, grace-driven, mercy-walking people. That's who we are called to be. You don't get more pastoral attention or first dibs at the potluck because you put money in the offering basket. You don't get some kind of sacred role at the members' meeting because you never miss a week of community groups. There are not tears of importance in this place, in this community. The church is to show no partiality when we gather, when we assemble, when we are together and engaging with one another. We are all together, striving together to grow together, to become, to become Christ-like and proclaim Christ together. But what about outside of Sundays? Because there are clearly societal levels of influence and power in our world. So how do we navigate those waters? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, he says, We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Over and over in the New Testament, you get references, you get phrases like, we are the living stones, we are the temple of God, we are the body of God, we are the, the bride of Christ. Whatever illustration you cling to, 
what the Christians knew then, what we know now, is that the church is more than a building. CF is a specific place on a map. You can Google, you can find us, 3425 North Damon. You can find us as a place on a map. But we are also scattered throughout all of the northwest side of Chicago. And really, we are scattered throughout the country and even into other parts of the world as people are sent out from our midst to pursue the calling of God in their lives. So then, if we are the church, if the people are the church, if it's not about the building, then being the body of Christ is more than just Sundays from 10.30 to 11.45-ish. If we are to exalt and glorify God at all times and in all ways, then we do that throughout our week. Then there is this instruction of no partiality. This declaration from James extends far beyond how we treat one another on a Sunday in this building, but rather how we treat people, period. Do you treat people differently? Do you play favorites? Do you show partiality in your day-to-day life? Does the person making small talk in Starbucks with you while you wait for your lattes get more respect and kindness than the person who's actually making the drink? Can you walk down the street and, see, and as you see people, consider each of them as equal in your own eyes, made in the image and likeness of God, and actually acknowledge them as a person? When you spend time with your family and you got that one family member who brings up their political agenda, which, is, which you don't agree with, how do you, re, how do you interact with them? Apex. This week you're going to meet a bunch of people from a lot of different places and a lot of different backgrounds. A lot of people who look and talk and think and believe different than you. Can you put down whatever preconceived notions and ideas about this city or those people and just see them as image bearers of the likeness and image of God? See, and this is where James is calling for our hearts. Because this isn't a checklist thing. This isn't a do better, be nicer thing. This is a has your heart been changed by God thing. In verse 8, he's going to talk about and bring us to Jesus' teaching about the social elements of the law, which Jesus basically boiled down for us into one simple phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew seven twelve says, so whatever you wish the others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. If you excel at this, you're doing well. Good job, gold star, pat on the back for you is what James says. But when our propensity toward partiality comes into play, this thing that is within us, this sinful part of our flesh that likes to gravitate towards being judges and ranking and condemning people based on appearance or accent or scholastic experience or whatever list you want to make up in your head to try and divide people, for those list makers... For the people who want to be the judges, the ones who decide who's most important, the ones who want to try and make Christianity about tears of righteousness, in doing that, James says, you have already sinned. You have already failed to the very law, the instruction of God, this self-righteousness that you have carried. The most self-righteous, most judgmental people are drawn to this way of thinking because it's a list, right? When we have the law, when we have this checklist of these are the things I have to do to be a good Christian, We like that because we like the do's and don'ts. It's a spiritual scorecard. 
Look at all the things I've accomplished. Look at all the ways you can see that I'm a Christian. Look at all the ways that I've won. Look how much better and stronger of a Christian I am than you. But you see, that way of thinking is as soon as you do it, as soon as you begin to show partiality, you begin to judge, you begin to think that you can somehow use your kindness, your good works to elevate yourself in some way, you have fallen short of the law. You have fallen short of the expectation. And James says, once you fall short in verse 10, it's total game over. You are guilty of all of the law. You showed partiality with people, and in the law, there is no partiality. It's all sin. It's all rebellion. You're dead under all of it. He says, adultery, murder, partiality, partiality, transgression is transgression. As soon as you are trying to use God's word, God's law, to try and put a velvet rope of exclusion on the church or on the cross or on the grace of God, you yourself have become a transgressor. So instead, James has a real novel idea for the church. Don't do that. In verse 12, he says, as you speak and as you act, calling back to chapter 1 where he says, don't just be hearers of the word, but also doers. Speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, of freedom, of forgiveness, of grace and mercy, the law of the gospel. Because when we die, we will face judgment, each and every one of us. And those who choose to live now using the law to try and win and earn and win and earn favor. You want to use your actions, your thoughts, your niceness, your goodness, your helpfulness. Those things will not help you on the day you meet God. Because in reality, what you have been trying to do is use these things to try and judge and convict and condemn others and elevate yourself. Those people will stand condemned under the law they have clung to so deeply and find themselves condemned to hell on account of their transgressions. Or you can stand and be judged by the law of liberty. Freedom, the gospel. Stand and be judged, not based on your life, your actions, your inactions, or your sins, but instead, if you would put your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then on that day you will stand and be judged based on his perfect, sinless righteousness. Christian, your faith is in the gospel. That means that right now you are standing in the righteousness of Christ. It is yours today, right now. It's how God sees you right now. It's how God deals and interacts with you right now. We have been invited and accepted into the family of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We have new life available to us here and now, full life, abundant life here and now, God-exalting life here and now. The gospel is not just a thing we believe and then it'll play itself out later on when we die. No, it has everything to do with how we live this world, how we see this world, how we view and interact with every person in this world. The gospel should be the filter in which we interact with everyone. So speak and act as one who knows that you have been saved by grace, that one who has tasted and seen the mercy of God, one who has rested and been renewed in the love of God. That's how James closes out this section in verse 13. Again, he's echoing the Sermon on the Mount. If you've been with us, James is really influenced by the book of Proverbs and the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew 7, it says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
And that's basically what James says here in verse 13. I love the way Eugene Peterson writes in, the, in his paraphrase of the Bible, in the message. He puts verses 12 and 13 together, and he says this. He says, talk and act like a person expecting to be judged by the rule that sets us free. For if you refuse to act kindly, you can hardly expect to be treated kindly. Kind mercy wins over harsh judgment every time. This is what Jesus was battling with on earth. The harsh judgment of the Pharisees, the twisting of God's word, the man-made abomination that kept everyone stuck, that no one could ever be good enough, no one could ever be right enough, that the Pharisees created this tier of perfection in their own eyes that nobody could ever reach. The religious authorities created an environment that was built on rules and punishment and judgment and man-made level of goodness. They tried to become the, become the gatekeepers of righteousness. That's not our job. That is the job and role of the originator of righteousness, the one in whom righteousness finds its creation, God himself. We are to be people who live in light of what we have received. Christian, you have received mercy. When God could have rained down his wrath toward your sin on you and done so completely being just, he didn't. And if your faith is in Christ, he won't ever do it because your sin has already been punished. The wrath of God for all of sin, for all of mankind has been put upon Jesus at the cross. We say grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. We are to be a people marred and marked by grace and mercy. Compassion and generosity, open doors, open arms, open lives. A people who are so aware of what we have received, we can't help but share it with others because it's too good not to. Look, this world is full of people and each one of them has been made in the image and likeness of God. And regardless of the things that differentiate us, the ways we are unique, the diversity of our city and of our world, it is not a reason to hold, up, to hold up with people who act, talk, think, and look just like you and only stay in those communities. But rather, the diversity, the variety, the things that make us different, it is a reminder of the creativity and power and majesty of God. And when he draws us together, when he unites us, when he gives us opportunities to welcome in the poor and the widow and the sojourner and the exile and the outcast and the lost and the lonely and the hungry and the thirsty, those who are suffering, those who need help, it reminds us that without Christ, that is us in desperate need of help, helpless and hopeless and lost. And it gives us the chance to exalt and glorify our God. It gives us the chance to lift up the name that is above every name, the only name through which we can be saved, the name that all people can be saved through, the name of Jesus. It gives us the chance to show the world that there is power, power, wonder, working, life-changing, grace-giving, shame-relieving, hope-instilling power in the blood of the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. All of them. For all of us. He showed no partiality when he came. He died with no partiality in his heart. He gave us the opportunity, all of us, to accept and believe. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
Instead, let us be a people whose hearts have been so changed by the gospel that we are a people who speak and act as those who live under the law of liberty, the gospel of grace. May we be a people of compassion and mercy because mercy will always triumph over judgment. Let's pray. God, you, when you saved us, when you called us to yourself, you said you are the lights of the world. You didn't really give us an option on that one. You called us to this big thing to reflect, to illuminate, to, to point others to you. God, we can't do that on our own. We are too overwhelmed, too tired, too distracted, too broken, too in too many ways we have allowed the world to disciple us. But you wouldn't call us to something that you wouldn't also equip us for. And that's what you have done. You have equipped us with the Holy Spirit. You have equipped us with your word. You have equipped us with community. To be able to learn and grow so that we might shine these lights brightly. But it doesn't work. It doesn't matter if our hearts aren't changed. If we don't desire to know you deeper, desire to love you more, desire to let the gospel do what it was made to do and change and transform and soften and give us new eyes to see and new ears to hear. God, help us. God, help us. Give us, give us hearts and that are, give us hearts that want to love this world and love it well and not just when it's easy and convenient and Instagrammable. Help us to be a people who reflect you to this world. Help us to break down the barriers and the dividing lines that we have created, that the world has created, that we have created, that we continue to create in our minds. Help us to set those things aside that we might see this world as you see this world, full of your image bearers, full of people that you made and know and love, full of people who are lost and helpless and hopeless, full of people who need to know that there is hope to be found and grace to be found and love to be found in a relationship with you. God, you have given us something. You have given us this gift. You have given us this new life. Help us to not hoard it to ourselves, but to share it with the world. In every interaction, in every thought, in every moment. From the time we open our eyes in the morning to when we close them at night. Let our decisions, let our thoughts, let our conversations, let our actions and inactions, all of them go through the filter of the gospel of the impartial, unconditional love that you showed to us by, by sending Christ to die for us. God, if there's anyone who, hasn't, who doesn't know you, who hasn't put their faith in Christ yet, the person still trying to win, earn, and work their way to you, the person who's still trying to look around and see just how much better they are than everybody else, Lord, would you break down those walls, break down those barriers, break down whatever it is that's keeping them from you, Lord. Let them know that there is grace and rest to be had. 
that the work has been done, that there's a new relationship with you found through the death and resurrection of Jesus. God, as we go into the world, as we interact with one another, as we interact with family and friends and neighbors and co-workers and strangers, God, help us to love well. Help us to see well and love well and to show no partiality and to shine brightly as the lights of the world you have made us to be. God, we thank you and praise you. Amen.